The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 6, 25-34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day is sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Jordan, and uh, hello, everybody. Uh, you can't see it uh, because you don't have a camera angle on it, but some uh, very loving, kind-hearted people in our church decided to uh, collect a bunch of photographs of, of, of you, and uh, many of them are are taped on the pews throughout the sanctuary. So when I'm looking out at the sanctuary right now, along with the others serving, I'm seeing pictures of your faces. And uh, what I want to ask you to do, if we don't already have a picture of your face, is again to use that hashtag CPC Nashville online uh, hashtag uh, on your social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, take a picture of yourself, whoever you're gathered with, uh, uh, if you're gathered with others, uh, or just yourself with your phone, your tablet, your computer, your television, uh, all those different options. Take a photo of what you're doing right now and share it on your social media. Put that hashtag, hashtag CPC Nashville online in uh, your notes, uh, in your comments under the photo. That way we can all do a search for that same hashtag and see your picture and see all the other pictures. And you can do the same and see everybody else's faces. It's, it's one way to, to stay connected as a community during this time. Uh, also, uh, if you consider yourself to be new to Christ Presbyterian Church, would you uh, go on the live stream page right now on the website, right there where the video is posted, and uh, there's a new here button. If you click that and just enter your name and email address, that will put you on our contact list uh, so we can get in touch with you, uh, say hello to you, uh, and also provide you with information coming up uh, about our church and, uh, and so on. Um, 
Also want to let you know, specifically if you are parents, uh, that on April the 30th, in the evening of April the 30th at 7.30 p.m., there's going to be a Parenting in a Pandemic Forum hosted by the CPC Kids Ministry. Want to encourage you to save the date on that. There'll be more information on the website in terms of how you can participate. Uh, and finally, if you are part of either the Cool Springs or Music Row congregations of Christ Presbyterian Church, I want to invite you now to push the buttons on the live stream page, uh, one for Music Row, one for Cool Springs Sermon. That way you can hear Stacy or Russ. If you're part of Old Hickory, uh, what you see is what you get. So, uh, so let's dive in to the scripture here. And uh, I'll start with just an anecdote uh, from uh, my own experience uh, not long ago, actually just a few days ago, I was working out on our back porch uh, on my computer, getting some things done, and I noticed that the birds were singing, uh, and then I looked around and noticed that the grass was, uh, was very thick and plush and green, and it's not like that uh, a lot of the time uh, throughout the year, and flowers were blooming. Uh, they were blooming on the trees, they were blooming on the ground, and it, it struck me, it dawned on me, the entire world is carefree, doing what it does, except for humans. The whole world is living carefree, moving forward with each day under God's care, oblivious to COVID-19, oblivious to the stress and the fear and health scares and economic concerns and social isolation, unburdened by the things that burden us. And I got to asking, why? Why is it that human beings are burdened and the rest of creation is not? There's actually a theological answer to that question. The theological question is this. The world, the earth, is the domain that God entrusted specifically and uniquely to human beings to care for and to cultivate. And wh when whatever it is or whoever it is you've been entrusted to care for or cultivate goes awry, it becomes actionable. It becomes an actionable concern. You know, Genesis chapter uh, chapter 1, 2, and 3, we, we see the Adam and Eve story unfolding, and, and we see that God is appointing Adam and Eve as what theologians call the vice regents, or like the vice presidents of the earth, the ones who uh, do his bidding and, and serve his purposes by cultivating the earth, tending his garden, uh, and so on. They're, they're a little king, and they're a little queen, and, and, and we're all little kings and little queens, called to cultivate and steward the earth. The eighth Psalm says that we've been crowned. God has put a crown on us, crowned with glory and honor, made a little less than the angels. Some translations say a little less than God. Crowned for what? To have dominion over creation. You know, Blaise Pascal, the great philosopher, mathematician, and believer in Christ said this, the greatness of man is evident. For who is unhappy at not being a king except a deposed king? We are unhappy while the birds continue to sing and the grass continues to thicken and get greener and do its thing and the flowers continue to bloom in their beauty. 
We are unhappy because we feel that we have been deposed from our role to cultivate and nurture the flourishing of the earth. The reason why we're unhappy with things like pandemics and the way that the rest of creation is not is that it is in our DNA to rule, not to be ruled by creation. You know, Earth Day was this past week and, and um, you know, one of our staff members in our uh, Zoom prayer meeting this morning reminded us, uh, Leah, Mo- Leah Moser, who's, who works in, in, uh, in uh, student ministry, reminded us that the whole world is still in God's hands. But we're also painfully aware that the whole world has slipped from our hands. What is worry? Worry is this, when we forget the former. That even though the whole world has slipped out of our hands, the whole world is still in God's hands. And so what I'd like to do is unpack what Jesus says about worry uh, in the text in front of us uh, under three headings. And those headings are what is worry, how do we confront it, and how do we know God is big enough? So, so let's start with the first question. What is worry? Uh, if we look at verse 31, we get a picture of that. Worry is an emotional commitment to a hypothetical worst-case scenario. Worry is an emotional commitment. It's a decision that we make to commit to a hypothetical worst-case scenario. In, in Jesus' vernacular, it looks like this. Do not be anxious about your life, asking, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? You know, when we are ruling, we have actionable concern for actual problems, and then we act on it. But when we are acting like worriers, we have active fixation on a hypothetical doomsday. Active concern is one thing. That's what rulers do. They get concerned about things that are wrong with the world and they take action and they do things like we're all doing right now. For instance, staying at home instead of gathering in large crowds. We're taking action on a concern. That's what rulers do. But worriers actively fixate on hypothetical doomsday scenarios. Deeper still, worry is a commitment to belief. It's a faith commitment. And it's faith in this thought. If the what if happens, the hypothetical doomsday, if the what if happens, then God will have failed us. It's a faith commitment. A faith commitment in what? Did you catch what Jesus called his disciples? It's so comforting that the the people, many of whom wrote the Bible, Jesus called them, oh, you of little faith. That makes me feel like I'm in good company. It makes me feel like I'm not canceled uh, by God in my days of worry and anxiety and, and little faith. The literal translation is little faith ones. Little faith ones. He calls them that repeatedly. They have a fragile faith in God that stems from a rooted faith in themselves. That's where worry comes from. Worry comes from a fragile faith in God based on a rooted faith in oneself. Worry is a byproduct of our reluctance to question ourselves. And a reluctance to question ourselves makes us ready. It creates a readiness to question God. 
We assume that we know best. We assume that we know how life should go in a good world. We assume that we know how the story should play out. Tomorrow, next month, three months from now, six months from now, and after that. Take a look at Job. Job is, is one of the greatest sufferers of all time. And Job was an extraordinarily good man. You know, God says about Job that he, that he fears God and he shuns evil and he's the most righteous person in the land. But he gets really shaken when he experiences his, his doomsday. His hypothetical doomsday becomes a reality. He loses all of his wealth. He loses his success. He loses his health. He loses the empathy of his friends. He loses 10 children. And he's just racked with loss. And, and one of the things that it says after all of these things happened to Job is what I feared has now come upon me. What I worried about has now come upon me. The hypothetical worst case scenario doomsday has now happened. And who was there on doomsday but God? It says that Job got on his knees and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what a ruler does. A ruler realizes that, that, that even on doomsday, the whole world is still in God's hands. But, but then Job's wife has an opposite reaction. And she says, curse God and die. What's the point anymore? And, and his friends, again, don't help at all. They treat his wounds very lightly. He's crying out for people to walk with him in his deep, deep pain. And they treat his wounds lightly. They're unresponsive. He's craving compassion. He's craving empathy. And what do they give him? Social distance. Not physically. They get in his face. It's not the physical social distancing that, that, that we're giving as a gift to one another right now. They give him emotional social distancing. We'll take your prosperity, Job. Oh, we, we want to be your friends with benefits, when you're rich and successful and on top of the world and throwing parties and having VIP moments, we, we want your success when things are growing and prospering and flourishing and the wine is flowing. But we don't want your pain. We don't want your neediness. Man up, Job. Get tough. Here's a man who's spent his whole life pouring out for others, and he's, he's now in, in, in a moment where he needs deep compassion. He's lamenting out loud, and the message from the people that he thought were, were his closest friends is, man up. He needs compassion, and they give him stoicism. He's in deep pain. He's completely shaken. And the worst part of it is the relational part. His wife distances herself, his friends distance themselves, and he feels as if God has also become distant. But worry is a faith commitment that we know better than God how the story is to play out. Which means it's also unbelief. 
You know, there's this theological word that pastors and, and, and ministers and theologians toss around. It's the word providence. And you'll notice that the, the, the first part of that word is the word provide. God's providence. God is a provider. But what worry says is that God's provision feels like deprivation. You know, there's Job's wife who said, curse God and die. He doesn't know what we need. Otherwise, he wouldn't have given us all of this disaster. But then there's Jonah. Jonah, the famous prophet who, who runs away from, from the call of God on his life. And as he's running away from God, he, he essentially tells people, I would rather be drowned in the ocean than do what God has asked me to do. And that's to preach a message that I know will cause my enemies, the Ninevites, and my people's enemies, the, the Ninevites, to become recipients of the mercy of God. I would rather drown in the ocean than forgive and embrace them. And what does God do? He intercepts Jonah's suicide mission. As Jonah tells the people to throw him off the boat into the ocean, it says, that what, what does God do? He provides. But what does he provide? A fish that swallows him. And, 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 and all this time in, in the darkness inside the belly of the fish, the slime, the, the digestive acids, the smell, the stench of the inside of a fish is God's provision. It's what God provided for Jonah. And then the fish vomits him out on the shore. And then there's Paul the Apostle. He talks about his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. And, 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 and he says, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And then I pleaded with the Lord that he'd remove it. So, so who has jurisdiction over the thorn? It's a messenger of Satan. It's, it's a dagger from Satan meant to torment Paul, meant to, to bring Paul down and to tear him apart. And yet it says, there was given me a thorn. And, and if you look at the Greek word, it's the Greek word charis. We get our word charity from that. We also get the biblical word grace, a gift of grace, God's providence. A thorn in my flesh. Why? How? To keep me from becoming conceited. Apparently there's a greater good in the mind of God than, than Paul's comfort. And that greater good is Paul's character. There's not just Jonah and Paul and Job. There's also Joseph whose, whose brothers betray him. They sell him into slavery. And years later, Joseph is prime minister of Egypt and, and Joseph's brother and, and all, brothers and all the Israelites. They need Joseph or else they're going to die. They need food. They need shelter in the midst of a famine. And his brothers come to him trembling, worried that he's going to punish them because they sold him into slavery years before. And Joseph says, what you meant for evil, what you meant for my harm, God meant for my good, for the saving of many lives, including yours. Verse 32, Jesus summarizes it this way. Your heavenly father knows what you need. He knows what you need. And, and 
the Job's wife in us asks the question, the Jonah in us asks the question, does he really? Does he know what we need? His provision feels like deprivation. His care feels unsafe and uncaring. We feel like the, you know, the two-year-old being pinned down on, on, on a, you know, a, a, a table in a doctor's office by mom and dad who are holding the kid while the, while the doctor or the nurse sticks a needle in the child. And, and the child doesn't look at the doctor. The child looks at mom and dad with, with this look of, you are betraying me. What, what is going on? You're writing this story all wrong, mom and dad. But it's, it's a well child shot. It's, it's a vaccine. Hopefully there'll be one for COVID-19 one day where our babies can get vaccinated and become invulnerable to what so many are vulnerable to right now. But all they see in that needle is pain. What the parents see is flourishing. Child isn't able to see what the parents are able to see. I'm going to ask a question that might feel like an unpopular question. COVID-19 is an evil thing. So is death. So is a cratering economy. So is unemployment. So is the inability to gather. These are all evil things. Things that we must fight against. Things that we must, as agents, as vice regents, as rulers, we must fight against these things and try to put an end to them as best we can. But what if what COVID-19 means for evil, God intends somehow for good? Can I ask that question? What if Johnny Erickson Tyra, who after spending decades in a wheelchair paralyzed from the neck down, what if what she said, that sometimes God allows what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves, what if that's true? What does that mean for our worries? Worry is a choice to be suspicious about what Johnny Erickson Tata said. Worry is a choice to be suspicious about what Jesus said, that your heavenly father knows what you need. Worry is a choice to be suspicious that God is a more trustworthy author of our stories than we are. Russ Ramsey, uh, our Cool Springs pastor, says that worry is allegiance to a false god. Whatever we worry about losing, whatever feels threatened, if it's paralyzing us, if it's causing us to shake our fists at God, if it's causing us to become suspicious about God as a competent author to our stories, then we're clinging to something that's not God. And it will let us down. So how do we confront worry? The key word in the text here is look. Look. Look at what's true. Turn your eyes away from hypothetical doomsday scenarios that tell you somehow that God's going to let you down, that God's not going to be there for you. Turn your eyes away from that and look at this. 
You know, as, as one of my mentors, uh, Professor Jerem Bars once told me when I was in a season of deep emotional paralysis because of hypochondria and the fear of death. He said, Scott, you need to learn to talk to yourself more than you listen to yourself. And that was just his way of saying what the Apostle Paul said. You need to learn to take your thoughts captive and make them obedient to Jesus Christ. You need to submit your thoughts to the thoughts of God, which are higher than your thoughts and higher than your ways. And so what does Jesus say we should look at? Look at the birds, verse 26. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. You are more valuable than the birds. Which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Now, there's this book that came out a few years ago called The Body Keeps the Score. And things like stress and worry, according to this book, The Body Keeps the Score, actually subtract hours from our lives. They don't add hours, they subtract hours. The book says that worry, stress, puts us at war with ourselves, emotionally, mentally, and physically. And then Jesus says in verse 28, look at the lilies, God clothes them, they're beautiful. And they're beautiful without effort. Even Solomon, King Solomon, with all of his riches, all of his wealth, all of his glory, all of his wisdom, even Solomon isn't dressed like the flowers in the field. How much more, if your heavenly Father will clothe the flowers in the fields in this way, will he not also clothe you? So, um, so Dave and Kelly Haywood are... Uh, members of Christ Presbyterian, and uh, Dave and Kelly shared a, uh, uh, a, a work of art from their son, Cash, recently. And uh, just a little bit of a background, Dave is, uh, is one of the anchor members of the band Lady Antebellum. It's a, a fairly well-known uh, band in, in sort of the pop country uh, world. And uh, their son, Cash, one day, uh, he's, he's about half as tall as I am, uh, wrote a biography of his dad. And here's some of the words from the biography. My dad is 37 years old. My dad is 11 feet tall. My dad's job is playing music for people, which means he is in a band. I think it's called the You Look Good Band. Cash Haywood, work of art. Catch this just for a second. Catch, so remember Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to enter it like a child. Catch this for a second. Catch how blissfully unconcerned this boy is about the details of his father's work and the details of how his father is providing for him. I think his band is called the You Look Good Band. Something like that anyway. But what he's hyper-focused on and hyper-specific about is the fact that his dad, in his eyes, is 11 feet tall. In other words, he's got this. He's got this. He's faster than a speeding bullet. He's more powerful than a, a locomotive, and he's able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. 
Oh, and his favorite thing to do is play with me in the park. His job, my dad's job, is to care. And my job is to receive care. That's our arrangement. Those are our lanes. What are the takeaways from all this teaching? One is that control is an illusion. Sometimes when negative circumstances happen to us, or like when Job says, what we fear comes upon us. When negative circumstances come upon us, it doesn't mean we've lost control. The negative circumstance is merely a smelling salt to wake us up to the reality that we never had control. We never have been our own providers. Only God holds providence in his hands. But here's the great thing about that. That father, your heavenly father, my heavenly father, is 11 feet tall. Maybe that's why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, the kingdom, K with a king with a capital K. And then all these other things, they'll be added to you. Don't be concerned about the details of how God's going to get his work done. Don't be hyper vigilantly concerned about, about the work that God has to do in order to provide. Just remember that he's 11 feet tall. That's all you need to know. Just remember that he's got this and then do what he says. King David learned how to enter into the kingdom like a child. King David saw, he looked and he saw two things. He saw his problems and he saw that his future looked ominous. His son Absalom was rebelling against him, leading a revolt. His son Absalom wanted his dad's job in the same way that we want God's job. Absalom wanted David's job. And so he tried to kill his father off. And he got many thousands of people, it says, to join his cause. His own son plus many thousands of people. But what does David do after he looks at that and looks at his problems and his ominous future? He looks at God and he writes this, Psalm 3, verse 5. I looked at my circumstances, then I looked at God, and I laid down and I slept. And then I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Reminds me of that wonderful lyric from Brandy Carlisle, her song, The Eye, where she says, you can dance in a hurricane, but only if you're standing in the eye. The eye of the hurricane, the center of the hurricane, that's where the peace is. That's where the stillness is. That's where the solace is. And you can dance there even, but you've got to stay there in the eye. I received this plaque from a mother. And this plaque uh, plays off of the Tolkien quote from Lord of the Rings. And it says, all sad things become untrue. And then the verse here is Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, all things, God works together for the good of those who love him 
and who are called according to his purpose. This plaque was given to me by this mother on the first anniversary of her own child's death. Surprised me. Came with a long note. A long note that included very legitimate lament because that's what a ruler does. A ruler laments when things have gone terribly wrong with God's world. But that letter also was filled with, with, with hope, not unlike this hope. How can you do that? On the first anniversary of your own child's death, the only way you can do that is if you have a father who's 11 feet tall. And as I read this mother's letter and when I talk to her and when I hear her pray, on those rare occasions I get to hear her pray, it's from this awareness that the Father in heaven is 11 feet tall. How do we know that God is big enough? We know in part because he became Job voluntarily, and it takes great power to volunteer for that kind of suffering in order to save others. What Jesus feared came upon him. You remember his prayer in Gethsemane, and he's about to be sent to the cross and be betrayed and despised and rejected and killed. And he prays. And he says, Father, please let this suffering pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then, in answer to that prayer, the Father's will was done. Jesus became the king who got deposed. Due to a rebellion by his own children and many thousands of people. So he also became a true David. He became the true, the true Paul. He was jabbed not merely with thorns of discomfort in his flesh, but with the thorns of death. He became the true Jonah, swallowed up and spit out and sent into the darkness of the belly of the earth. He became the true Joseph, sold into slavery. What we meant for evil toward him, God meant for good. His captivity has become our freedom. His famine has become our feast. Do you see the narrative here and how it plays out? How do we know God is big enough? We know he's big enough because he dealt with the hurricane. And he ultimately defeated the hurricane of death by rising from the dead. He looks at hurricanes and he says, peace, be still. So that he can dance with us in the eye of that hurricane. That's Jesus. We look to the past, but we also look to the future. We look to the past for what Christ the King has done. And we, we look to the future to what Christ the King promises to do, and that's to return a second time and to make all things new and to make this plaque and everything that, that it says and everything that it represents come true. All sad things in the past, all your best days still ahead of you, never behind you. That's the promise. The true worst case scenario long term 
is resurrection and everlasting life. That's as bad as it's going to get for anyone who believes in Jesus Christ, for anyone who looks to God the Father and says he's 11 feet tall. My circumstances are a foot and a half taller than me, but my, my God is, and, and my Father in heaven is way up there, 11 feet. He's got this. If it's scary and sad, it will come untrue. Because your Heavenly Father knows what you need, even before you ask him. What we're going to do as we close uh, now is we're going to uh, join together in a, in a two-part response. What I'm going to ask you to do now is to stand wherever you are in your homes, I assume, to stand for the singing of our last song. And this song is going to bring it all together, everything that, that, that I've been talking about and, and what Jesus is teaching us here in Matthew. It's a song about the sovereignty of God, about his providence or providence. It's about how even what our enemy means for evil, God turns it for our good and for his glory. So we'll sing that. And then there's a practical application after that. We're going to invite you, as we always do, to give generously to the Lord and to his kingdom and his purposes uh, and to the church. You know, the presenting issue for Jesus, for all of this teaching on worry, was that people were worried about money. You can read the whole context. You can read the... The, the, the chapter, Matthew chapter 6, to, to see the full teaching there. But money is a way that we can demonstrate how tall we believe that our Father is. Now, those who have lost the ability to give, there's, there's no invitation here for you except to, to receive. If you've become unemployed, if you've lost uh, the giving capacity that you had before COVID-19, if you're part of of the people who are filing for unemployment and struggling deeply with, with what this season is bringing, we ask you to give nothing. We ask you to, to assume the, the receiver's posture. And those who are still positioned to be generous, we want to ask you as well to start with a receiver's posture because you only have one provider. And so what, what we're doing now as we give back to the Lord is uh, we're just handing back to him what already belongs to him that he is delighted to share with us so that we can do that. But first, let's sing. And then afterwards, I'll pray for the offering. And then there'll be a button, as there always is, on the live stream page uh, for those who are uh, led and inclined to give. Let's sing together.